stewards of what God has given us, generous givers. And we went through a great, a great amount of detail there. We said that if we were going to be generous givers, that we had to uh, learn to give with joy, that it needed to be a joy for us to be able to give to those who are in need. Uh, we talked to a great extent uh, last week about how if we're going to give, we have to give even in tough times, not only in times of abundance. We have to give wherever it is whenever it is that wherever we are financially in our own lives. And then we also talked last week, finally, about how each and every one of us, no matter where we are on the area of giving, we can all become more generous than what we already are. And the Bible includes and encourages us to do that, to grow in our generosity towards those who are in need. And so this week, uh, we're kind of carrying on. And with all that said, um, let's just be honest. It's going to take a great deal of motivation for you and I, and for all of us to be generous givers. Here's why. Because it doesn't come natural to our flesh to take our good, hard-earned money and give it away. We all feel that tension. Uh, we, we like to make excuses. Well, let them make their own money. I work for this. I get it. I get that feeling. I get that understanding. And we're not talking about being frugal with our money. We're not talking about wasting money and wasting it and be uh, on people who, who are not doing their part and trying to work and things like that. It's not what we're talking about at all. But what we are saying is that we need to have great motivation. Whenever you're doing something difficult, it's great to be motivated, isn't it? Come January, a lot of us are going to sit there and go, I got to get motivated to get in shape. All right, you, you got that? Some of us are already feeling that. We haven't even gotten to Christmas, haven't even gotten to all the big meals, and already we're thinking we need to do that. Well, we need some motivation, yes? And so for some people, they just merely go to the doctor. They go to the doctor, and the doctor goes, Look, dude, do you enjoy living? Well, matter of fact, yes, I do. Then you need to start living differently, or you're not going to be living very long. Get with it, start exercising. And so for some people, at least it would be for me if the doctor told me that, guess what? That would be incentive and motivation to get in shape. For other people, it's probably not nearly as a grand of a motivation. It might be, listen, I got my 20th or 30th year high school reunion coming up, and I know I don't care for any of those people, don't even remember their names. I haven't talked to them in 20 or 30 years, haven't been in contact with them at all, but I do care about what they think about me when they see me after all these years. And so I need to work out to get in my skinny jeans. I've got skinny jeans I need to get into, so that's my motivation. And men, if you have skinny jeans, don't ever wear them again, okay? Men, we don't need skinny jeans for you. So, uh, so that's some motivation. Let me tell you what always motivates me. If I'm not feeling good, if I'm feeling a little out of shape, need to get in shape, what I do is I go and I rent one of the Rocky movies. And the theme song to the Rocky movies is what really motivates me. Yes? That, see, I mean, already. I mean, I mean, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to fight. You guys, that, men, any men in here, does that motivate you to run? Does that motivate you to get in shape? Even if it's running to Krispy Kreme Donut Shop, doesn't it make you got to feel, you know, it motivates you? And so the truth of the matter is, is to do difficult things, when you've remained idle for a long period of time, <coughs> excuse me, we need great motivation. Sorry. <coughs> there we go. Cough away from that. Uh, we need great motivation to get moving. And the same is true in the area of being generous givers. If we're going to be generous givers uh, to those around us who need help, then we're going to have some, we're going to need some great motivation. And so what Paul does here is he knew that. 
And when he's writing to the Corinthians, he's letting them know, hey, listen, guys, you need to be generous givers. But now he's going to let them know and give them some motivation to be able to be the generous givers in which God has called them to be. So there's going to be three points of motivation that I want you to see in the word of God this morning. Here's the first one. First of all, he motivated by providing an example for them. He motivated them by providing an example. Now, beginning here in verse 8, look, look how the word of God begins. It says, I say this not as a command, but to, provo- but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. All right, let's unpack that for a minute. When he says, I say this not as a command, here's what he's trying to say. He's saying, I'm not commanding you or demanding of you to give. I'm not making you give. That's not it at all. He says, if you give, I want you to give of your own free will. Well, I want you to give, but what I want you to do is I want you to give from your own generous heart. And so he's not going to command them, but he is going to encourage them to give. And he finds encouragement in this next part of the sentence. He says, but is proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Now, who are these others that he's talking about? Well, he's referring to uh, the Macedonians. We talked about this last week, but let me, let me remind you. The Macedonians, they were churches that kind of littered the northern portion of Greece. And they began to hear about the need of these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And the Jewish Christians had been persecuted. They were in great poverty. They were in great need. And these believers halfway around the world, at least as their concern, hear about their need. And they can't help but to help their brothers and sisters in Christ. So they begin to take up these offerings and begin to send this offering with Paul and with others to be able to meet the needs of those particular people. (coughs) The amazing thing is this, is that they themselves were in great need. They were in great poverty. They themselves were being persecuted as a church. But even out of their poverty, they begin to give in an extraordinary way. And so what Paul is saying here is he says, listen, (coughs) You need to follow their example. He says, this is what they proved. What they proved is they loved God. They proved not only did they love Paul in the church, but but they're giving to the church and those who were in need, those who were impoverished, it ultimately demonstrated their love for God. Now follow their example. Give to prove your love for God as well. Now how in the world does giving to those who are in need prove our love and faith to God. Well, the way that you need to understand this is really from a New Testament perspective. When we look at the New Testament, the Bible uses the idea of people loving God and uses it synonymously, meaning the same, as being a born-again believer, being a follower of Jesus Christ. Followers of Jesus Christ love God, right? Yes. Those who don't love God are not believers in Jesus Christ. Very clear, those who love I mean, would would we all admit that from the word of God? If you love God, then you follow God. You love him. If you don't love God, then you're not in the faith. This is really just the unpacking of Romans 3. The Bible says that there are none righteous, no, not one. Nobody seeks after God. Why does no lost person seek after God? Because nobody loves God. You only pursue what you love. When God, by his grace and his mercy, saves us and changes us, we now love God and we begin to pursue him. So, so get this, the, the, the loving God is equivalent to being born again. But here's the question, how do we know that we love God? How do we know that we love God? Well, there's a lot of different ways that we can know. 
Uh, and there's several books that have even in the Bible that really tell us. And, and one of the ways that we know, according to the Gospels, that we love God, that we're truly in the faith, is that we love other brothers and sisters in Christ. That we love the church it, that Christ gave his life for. John writes about this in 1 John. He says in 1 John 4, 23-21, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, meaning Jesus. He says, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So he goes, so he's saying, look, if you ultimately love God, the way that you know love, you love God and that you're truly born again is you love other believers in Jesus Christ. But the Bible never allows us uh, to define love as merely some just abstract or internal emotion or feeling. It's not just about what you feel, it's about what you what? Do that demonstrates whether you truly love somebody or not. Well, John picks up on this in his, in his writing as well. In 1 John three seventeen, he writes this. <clears throat> but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, that means another believer in Jesus Christ, he said, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He's questioning. He's just saying, hey, listen, if you, if, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you love God, then you're going to love a brother. He goes, but if they have a genuine need, and you see that need, and you have the ability to be able to meet that need, and, and it's an honest-to-goodness need, but you don't seek to try to do anything about it or whatever, he goes, you, we must begin to kind of wonder if we are truly in the faith. That's what he says there in 1 John. So, so what Paul's doing is he's bringing about the positive side of that. He's saying to them, he says, listen, I know that you love God. I know that you love man. But here's, here's the bottom line is you need to come to the point where you understand that your love has got to be proven for God. And the way to prove it is to love these people and to be able to meet their needs. By doing it, you prove your faith in God. Does, it, does, does that make sense? And so now understand, Paul's not trying to bring out some type of, uh, of competition between the Macedonian church and the Corinthians. You know, churches, they all just seem to be in competition. You know, even when I'm around and about, and I'm trying to share the gospel. I'm like, so what church do you go? Well, we go to this church. And I'm like, okay, I, look, I'm just asking, you know, and everything. And it's almost like defensive. I'm like, I'm so glad you go to a church. That's, I've heard great things about that. Oh yeah, it's great. You better believe it's a great church, you know. And I'm like, dude, great, awesome, praise Jesus, all right? I'm never asking again. All right, so you just kind of walk away. And so he's not trying to bring some kind of competition. He's not even telling, and this is important, he's not even telling the Corinthians that they need to give to the same extent as the Macedonians chose to do by their own free will. He's not even saying you need to give to the point that you're impoverished himself. He goes, he's, he's, not, he's not saying that or suggesting that. Instead, all he's saying is he wants them to be able to turn inward and realize that there's something not right. He wants them to be able to look at the example of the Macedonians and see their love, not only for their fellow man and for God, and see that they demonstrated it through giving and helping them and helping their needs, and look at themselves and say, hey, listen, we love God. We love our neighbor. We love Paul. We're concerned for the needs of these other people down here, but there's a problem. The problem is I love them, but I'm not demonstrating it by taking the world's goods and helping those who are genuinely in need. There's a problem here. Now, as Christians, guys, we are in great 
need. We are in great need of having true biblical and wonderful examples of what generous giving is. Because again, we see it so little And it doesn't come naturally to us. It's something that we have to really begin to build and really begin to develop in a lot of us. We need good examples. And you know, the Bible is full of them. The Macedonians are a wonderful example of what generous giving looks like. To be able to give to a need, even when yourself, when you find yourself in need. Uh, we, We talked a great deal last week about the woman with the widow with the two mites. Remember? She's destitute and she takes the two mites and she places it in the coffers and it even gets the attention of Jesus. You know, there's other places in the word of God that demonstrates that kind of generosity. Uh, I, I think of Zacchaeus. You know Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man. Wee little man was he? You remember him? And, and so what does he do? He gets saved. He comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, he goes, I will give up to half of all that I have to the poor. That's, wow, that's generous giving. Any takers, right? Yeah, I mean, that's generous. Would you agree? We think of Mary. We think of Mary when she comes to the feet of Jesus and she takes the alabaster jar and she takes it and it's full of spikenard perfume, very, very expensive perfume. In fact, people tell us that it, it was probably worth some $40,000 in, in today's, monetary, of a today's monetary value. In just one simple act of worship, she breaks it and she begins to pour it on the head of Jesus Christ. That is generous giving. But we not only have stories in the Bible, examples in the Bible, But we also have examples from the everyday throughout church history. And there's one that that just locally has happened. Maybe some of you have heard about Ronnie Smith. Ronnie Smith was a man who had graduated from a university there in Texas. He was a missionary. And he was serving, serving in Libya. And he was there in Libya and he was working in a high school. And, and it's sad that many of you probably have not heard of this, but it's very, very important that you know what happened to Ronnie. Ronnie went over there to share the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. He gave everything up. He and his family gave up, sold everything to be able to work over there in a high school so that he could begin to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And guess what happened Thursday? After him sending his family off back here, he's jogging, trying to stay healthy. He's jogging and all of a sudden, he's gunned down some, by some militant Muslims, and he gives his life. Talking about giving. He's not just giving up finances. He's giving his entire life for the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's extraordinary. But let me tell you what is sad. What is sad to me is that so often you and I don't take those examples and allow them to be used and to have the impact in our life that they're actually supposed to have. Let me explain. We hear things like the widow might, widow's might, and we hear about Mary, and we hear all these things. This is what we hear. We hear in this essence, we're in awe. That's the first way we respond. Wow, that's amazing. Some of you have heard about Julie Peterson. Julie, one of the missionaries that come up, jo- jo- Joyce's and Peterson. Man, she sold it all. Man, she just basically said, all right, selling it all, just going to follow Jesus. And a lot of us sit back and go, dude, that's impressive. That's pretty amazing that you would give up the security here and go to a foreign land that hardly has any beef at all. That's hard enough. That's suffering for Jesus, all right? And so, so they find themselves going, and, and, and there she is, and it's amazing. We find these stories, and, we all, and what we do is sometimes we tend to exalt them. Are you guys with me? We, t- we tend to exalt them, and we feel, wow, they're amazing. And we begin, if you're not careful, you begin to think that they're like this complete subset of Christianity, that they're just these unique individuals. That's not really the norm, but they're just, you know, kind of like saints, if you will, kind of in the Catholic Church. They somehow have got it more than the rest of us. That's one way we view in awe. 
The other way we see these examples is that we, we feel awful, right? We feel awful. We look at that and we go, man, I'm, I'm a horrible, despicable human being. I mean, here is this man. He's given up everything. He's even giving his life for the spread of the gospel. I mean, I could barely get up on Sunday morning to be able to come in church. I could barely walk across the street to be able to help somebody there. And these people are giving everything up, all their finances, everything. And here I am, man, so stingy and, and still wanting more and more and more. And we begin to feel bad. But be very careful, Christian. Be very careful because, oh, how much we love to feel bad about ourselves sometimes. We love to feel bad. We love, I mean, you've heard it. People sit there as a preacher. You get done preaching. Oh, preacher, you really stepped on my toes today. Really feel burden. Okay, well, that was really not the intent of the message was to make you feel guilty. The message was for you to respond for you to respond, for you to, to, to change. And so, so what happens is, is, is understand this and get this very well. It's not to elevate other people, the examples. It's not for you and I to demean ourselves. It's rather for us to identify with saints who have come before us and to begin to live out in practice in the same example as they were that we begin to give because of our love for God and because of our love for one another. That's what stimulates us. That's what moves us. That's what motivates us to be able to give. And, and listen, here's the deal. And not even, God's not even saying, go and give your life. He's not even saying, sell all that you have and, and move and, and, and go to another country. He's not saying any of that. What he's just saying is, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to be motivated with the idea that when we give to those who are in need for the sake of Jesus Christ, it proves all the more that we are in the faith. That's what motivates. There's a second thing that motivates here, and this is this. He says he motivated them to go beyond good intentions. He motivated them to go beyond good intentions. Notice, if you will, in verse 10. He says, and in this matter, I give my judgment. Now, again, he says, I give my judgment. In other words, in today's language, I'm going to give you my opinion on this. Paul is always careful to let you know what his opinion is, what is the word and what is not the word. However, I will remind you that he is writing underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So there is great weight to what it is that he is saying. But he says to him again, he says, he says it is, it is uh, um, and in this matter, I give my judgment. He says, here's my opinion. He says, this, meaning giving, benefits you. He says, by you giving and being a generous giver, it not only demonstrates that you're, your love for God, that you are truly within the faith of God, he says it also, here it is, he goes, is a great, huge, massive, honking benefit to you. And I want you to understand that. It's good for you to give. Why? Because of the blessings of God. Listen, we live by the grace of God. God gives us far more than we can ever expect. Amen? Right? We live by the grace of God. He gives us far more than we can ever gain in this world. He just gives, we even mess up and he still blesses us. And that's grace. That's getting what you don't deserve. But never underestimate God's willingness and desire to bless those who are faithful. He loves to bless them over and above. And those who give and those who give generously, he loves to give in an amazing way. Uh, he he kind of sums it up in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, just in the very next chapter. Paul writes, he goes, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You get that, right? So if you're stingy in your giving, 
You're going to be stingy. God's going to be stingy in his giving to you. If you're going to be a, 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 a generous giver, God says, I'm going to be a generous giver to you. Got that? He goes, so I'm going to watch, and if you give generously, I'm going to give to you generously. This is the same teaching of Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 6, verse 38, he says this, give, and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will put it into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So you guys get what he's saying. He's saying, he's saying bottom line, here's what you need to understand. You cannot outgive God. You give, it's going to be to your benefit. You can actually sit there and go, well, I'm going to give and I'm going to sacrifice. God goes, you can't do that with me. Because if you give, I'm going to give you more in return. Now let's make sure that our feet are planted theologically on the ground, can't we? Because some of you are ready to, you know, Pass the wheel and come on, baby, where's the money? Okay, that's what you're trying to do. And that's what's being taught a lot in the prosperity gospel today. Here's what he is not saying. He's not saying that every time that you give, and if you begin to give and you're a generous giver, that those blessings are always going to come back monetarily. You put in 10%, you get back 100%. The truth of the matter is it kind of works that way because as soon as you give, you turn around and you usually get a paycheck. Does, does, does that make sense? So he is giving in a tremendous way. But oftentimes those blessings come in other ways. And, and I got to tell you this. I've recognized this. I know folks that don't have two nickels to rub together, but they are faithful givers. And let me tell you how God has blessed them. Their marriage is spectacular. It is amazing, their marriage, how they love each other. Their family, their kids, you're sitting there going, how is this even possible? Their kids love them. They love their kids. Their kids are honoring God. I believe some of that is a blessing to those who are generous givers. I believe some people, God blesses them because of their health. We, we kind of joke about this. I'm kind of like, um, you know, with some people, they're like, well, I can't afford insurance. It's a good thing that God blessed me with good health. Have you ever heard somebody say that? And, and, and they go, God just blesses in all of these different ways. Sometimes he blesses you spiritually. Every time he blesses you spiritually when you give. When you give and you're able to give, God works and moves in your life and the Holy Spirit. You just seem like you're walking closer to God because what you're doing is you're acting like Jesus Christ. You're giving to those who are ultimately in need. Now, now with all that said, let me kind of come back to the other side. In the same point, I just got to be honest with you, it's how it's worked in my life, and it's how, it's how it's worked in many others, is God does oftentimes bless you financially. He just does. I just can't get you the promise that that's going to happen. My wife have been in very tight times. We've tried to gather money to be able to pay for school. Uh, just for my education, we paid over $150,000 for our education, and we owe no debt whatsoever. God was able to be able to provide that. I didn't have to take out student loans for the master's and the doctor. God was able to provide. It was tough. It was hard. When we were even there at seminary, we remember sitting there and we go, how much do we have for the next tech week, ten, uh, two weeks? We've got $15 for the next two weeks to eat, for gas, for everything else. Let's just pray that nothing happens. And, of course, you know that it does. But guess what? We just sit there and we give generously, not believing that God is going to always give us money, always give us financial things, but we're just going to trust him. We know that we're always going to be blessed by giving. That's why he says it's better to give than ultimately to receive. And so that's where he goes with them. And now notice this next part. Paul wants them to know, uh, next part, he says, Paul continues, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. If you weren't here last week, let me give you kind of a picture again. Here's what happened. Paul wrote the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. And at the end in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he asked them, would you please give? Would you give to this need of the people over in Jerusalem? 
Well, between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there was a falling out between the two. There were some false teachers who came into the church at Corinth, and they began to spread lies. They began to say this, and you probably heard some of these lies. Paul is, you know, just really playing favoritism. He only cares about the Jews, and he wants the Gentiles to take care of his favorite people, the Jewish people. Or how about this one? I hear this today. People, they begin to say, well, he's only doing it on his own selfish gain. He's only preaching on money because he wants more of it for himself. So he's doing all these things, and the people stopped giving. And so what Paul is trying to say is he says, look, a year ago you started, and then you stopped. So what happens is Paul wrote them another letter that we don't have in the word of God. It's called the severe letter. He refers to it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 3 through 4. It's where he just takes the whole church to the woodshed. And he says, you're wrong on this. You need to repent. And the good thing is, by the grace of God, the majority of the church repented and began to come back into the faith and submit themselves to Paul. So then what Paul does now is he picks up and he's encouraging them. Hey, you started back then. Now finish what you started. He says, so now finish giving it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing. He says, so I need your desiring to give to match your actual completing of your giving. In other words, he's sitting there and he's saying, hey, listen, guys, bottom line, here it is. Here's the biblical principle. Your good intentions are not the same as you doing something. You guys got that? You guys look like you're sleeping. I'm so sorry that it's so boring. But just track with me, if you will. This too shall pass, okay? So, so get this. So, so, so he says, your good intentions is not the same as you doing something. All right, I, I could tell you you're not tracking with me, so let me give you an example. My wife and I's anniversary this month, 15 years, praise God, I was to, to the same woman. I can't, I can't believe that she's still married to me. It's amazing. It's, it's the grace of God that she's still married to me. I can understand being married to her, her married to me. It's amazing. It's the grace of God. But she forgets our anniversary, my poor wife. She, uh, she doesn't remember that it's, you know, December 19th. She just forgets, and I have to remind her. I reminded her in the first service. But imagine this on the 19th. We get done. The, the, the day is over. I'm about to go to bed, and I just kind of tell my wife. I sit there and say, honey, listen, I had intended all day to tell you happy anniversary. But, you know, I, I just never really got around to it. And, and, honey, I had intended to take you out to this wonderful restaurant. She loves steak. It's weird, you know, usually you think women would chicken. She just, I mean, it's, 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 she's just a, a carnivore. She just loves steak, right? And we're like, hey, give the biggest steak you can. They bring it to me, and they're like, no, that's hers, you know, and, and that's what she likes. And I say, honey, and I was going to get you this huge steak. We're going to get this wonderful steak. And, uh, and, and, and I was going to get, I had intended to get um, as well, you know, a babysitter to be able to take care of the kids. Had that all playing. I was thinking about that, you know, all year long. I thought, and I wasn't even going to sing you a song. I, I wrote this little song on the kazoo that I think that you would love, and, and it's got all kinds of wonderful flowery words and, and everything, and I was going to give that uh, to you. And then at the end of the day, uh, she would probably, my gracious wife, she would say this, well, honey, thank you. It's the thought that counts. But does it really? I mean, seriously, does does the thought of all those things really match up to the doing? I don't know why we even say that. Because the, the thought does not, it, 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 listen, me intending and wanting and the thought of giving you a million dollars, does it make you as happy as me giving you a million dollars? No. It's just good intentions. And so what he's saying is he's coming back and he's saying, guys, it's got to be more than just what you're intending to do. You have to do it. That's where the hard part is. 
because we have to be disciplined. We have to be disciplined in finances. We, we actually have to get in there. And we actually, if we go through this series and all of you are like, yes, I want to be a gracious giver to those who are in need and to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you don't actually sit down and begin to do the work and begin to budget and see what you have to get rid of in order to be a generous giver, then it's just a thought. It's just a good intention. Jesus really gives an example in Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. He tells a story. He makes the same exact point. He said, a man had two sons. And he told the one son to go into the field and work. And he said, yo mama, all right? He just said no, basically, all right? That's Mike's translation. He said, no, I'm not, not going to do it. But he says, but later he changed his mind, and he went into the field, and he worked in the field. Because he came to the second son, and he told the son, he says, son, go into the field and be able to work today. And the second son said, absolutely, dad. You're the best, and I know I'm your favorite. I'm going to go, and I'm going to do it. I'm so excited about doing it. Mike's version again, and he goes out, and he doesn't do it. Then Jesus just simply says this, who did the will of the master, the first or the second? Jesus is not really all that impressed with good intentions. What he's looking for, and it's not the same, good intentions is not equal to obedience in God. So I want to say this, because next year, when, if, we, if we do another stewardship series, I, I don't want you to sit there and go, hey, listen, we thought about this, and we wanted to do this. This is a pastor. This is one of the most perplexing things to me as, as, as a pastor, of how many people start off, and they seem so excited and so motivated and so enthusiastic about doing things they know they ought to do, and they just can't do it. And I want to be a part of a small group. I, I believe that's what the Word of God says, but I just can't seem to do it. How many people I've talked to have sat there and said, man, I know I need to be in the word of God. I know I do. And one day I'll begin it. Do you understand your good intention of doing it is not the same as doing it? And it's the same as the word of God. He motivates by asking them to move beyond good intentions to actually do and to actually give. Here's the third thing, and here's the last point. He motivated them by calling them to fairness. Now, this is, I have to warn you, this was the first, in, in the first service, um, I thought that people were going to break out weapons and begin to hurt me. Okay, so let me just get it out, and we're going to preach the Bible, and then you just deal with it, okay? All right? All right, then you go on, and I'll enjoy my afternoon, then you can grumble and complain all afternoon, but I don't have to hear it. Got it? See, I love you so much. See what I do for you? All right, so here we go. So he, he writes, he says, for if the readiness is there. It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Some of you are such givers, so awesome, so incredible. You need to quit beating yourself up because you're not giving what you don't have. I know folks like that. They want to give and they want to give more. If you make 25 grand, you can't give 50 grand. Do you, do you get that? You, you can't give it. It's it's just simply not there. And I know people who have the gift of giving, and they are just extraordinary givers, and they'll throw everything at you. And they're like, yeah, I'll give that. And you're like, well, you don't have that to give. And so what he's trying to say is he's trying to say, relax. Whatever it is that God has entrusted you with, whether one talent, three talents, or five talents, or two two talents, or, or five talents, you be faithful with that. If he gives you one talent, you can only give from the one talent. If he gives you five talents, you have more to be able to give. But here's the bottom line, the, the, the principle of the word of God. Whether you have little or whether you have a lot, God blesses you when you set a portion of money apart consistently, specifically for the work of the gospel 
and for the help of those that cannot help themselves. Do you, do you got that? He blesses those. No matter how much it is, even if your amount is smaller than somebody else's amount, it might be smaller because you just don't make as much. So be faithful with what you have. Then in, look in verse 13. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. Here's what he's saying. Great book came out a little while ago. It's called Radical. Anybody read the book Radical? Okay, three people. Good for Okay, it's like popcorn. People are just popping everywhere. All right, maybe I'll wait. So it, it's, it's a great book, Radical. Um, but, but what I found is it, sometimes people go further than what the book actually intended them to be able to do. They read it and say, we need to be radical about the propagation of the gospel, agree with the whole thing, and they don't see anything wrong in the book. But this is the way people think. People turn around and they're like, dude, I read that book. I gotta sell everything I have. I gotta get rid of my cars. I gotta get rid of my house. I gotta get rid of my 401k. I gotta get rid of any kind of savings I have. I gotta get rid of my shirt. I gotta get rid of my food. I gotta get rid of everything. Okay, now just follow with me, just for a second, that kind of logic. If we all do that, then we're just adding to poverty. You guys got that, right? Okay, so, so I mean, literally, and, and people that I love, and they, they were in the first service, so don't, don't get freaked out. I told them I was going to say this. They, they literally were like, we've got to get rid of everything. And, then, and I'm like, then who's going to take care of you? Then we got one more person we've got to take care of. Don't, you know, okay, you've you got to relax, okay? So, we, he, so what he, Paul is saying is he goes, I'm not telling you to give so much to the point to where you change places. To where you're giving all to the poor, and then they become you, and you become impoverished. This is not a poverty ethic or a poverty gospel. So he's, he's making sure that we're clear with that. He says, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. So the fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply your need. There's the word that begin to hit people, and they begin to get crotchety curmudgeons because they heard the word fairness. Because what they do is all they hear is in politics is, is fairness, okay? I'm not making a political statement here. I'm just trying to help you navigate through the word of God. Did you know that the Bible, so I'm going to say something, and then I'm going to come back. So, so don't, don't, don't lose your faith, okay? Here's what I want you to hear. The Bible promotes and teaches, whether you believe it or not, I'm going to make the point, a redistribution of wealth. It teaches that. It teaches fairness. It teaches fairness as if you are somebody with abundance and you have more than what you need, then it should then in turn. That's what he's teaching here. Look at, look at the text. Teaching here, then it was right. It is fair then for you who have more than what you need to be able to give to those who do not have enough. A redistribution of wealth. Now, let me explain a couple things, all right? I know you're still very angry. I know it's okay. I still love you. It's the word, but let me explain something. The difference, and there's two very important differences. One difference is this is what God requires of the church. It's not what he requires of a government, okay? That's two different things, all right? We still submit to the laws of the land, whether you like them or not. Whoever's in office, we still do that. But what I'm trying to say, but this is what the church is supposed to be doing. When the church, you and I, have more than what we need, then what we do is it's only fair, he says, that we looked after those who do not have enough to be able to meet their need. And so he says that. There's another difference between the two. One is made to give up their money. The other voluntarily, willfully, wantingly gives up their money. Do you see there's a huge difference between the two? 
One is we're going to take your money and we're going to give it to somebody else. I'm not asking whether you agree or disagree. I'm just showing you the difference. The difference with the church is nobody has to take my money because I willfully see the needs of others and I willfully give it because I have more than what it is that I ultimately need. Another difference, and I think it's important just so that you guys understand, we are not promoting laziness as a church either. I think there's a little bit of a difference. I think this is, no matter who's in office, Republican, Democrat, whatever it is, we, this is where we get wrong. We get wrong where we actually honor people who aren't working. It's like, hey, I've had so many people say, hey, I lost my job, but I'm making more right now by not being employed than employing. There's something seriously wrong with that. Okay, I mean, that's my personal opinion, all right, with that. But the point is, is what the Bible's saying is he's not saying go and to be able to honor and to be able to help people who are able-bodied, who should be able to work. They're just too lazy to be able to do it. That's not what it's saying. The Bible actually says if you don't work, you don't eat. That's what the Bible says. So what he's saying, though, is that we are to help those who cannot, and in a position that they cannot help themselves. Do you see that? No matter how hard they try, they, they're trying to work, they're trying to, to, to make a living, but they just can't do it. And so that's what he's talking about here when he talks about specifically fairness. Now, I want you to show something, uh, see something. He says, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at this present time should supply their need. Now, notice this next part. So that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. So understand what the Bible's teaching. He's saying another reason why it's your benefit to be able to give is because you don't know when you're going to be in a position that you need help. He says right now, you have the abundance, they have nothing. But there may be a time when things switch around and you need help and they're the ones that have the abundance. And he says, and guess what, right, guys? Don't be mad at me. Just look at the word. Do you see that this is what the word of God is teaching? And he says, he says, and then in that particular time, you might need of them. And it's not hard for me to be able to look around America and look what's going on and, and the fears of the markets and the economy and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and it's true, our, church, our, our churches and the people are moving further and further away from God. I mean, does anybody argue that point? We're, we just are. We just we don't want God in this whole situation. We want God out. That's what the nation, in essence, is saying. And, much, you know, leaders from, from, from Democrat, Republican, whatever, they're all kind of saying this in some ways. And so what I, what I have to say is there may very well come a time that the ones that we're helping in Africa and the ones that we're helping in, 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 in Southeast Asia and all these different types of places, that guess what? One day we as believers might be under tribulation and might be in poverty and we're looking for help from those believers. Do you see that? Now, let me, let me say one more thing with this. And then I'm gonna go back up to verse nine, a verse that I specifically passed. Some of you are wonderful givers but some of you need to learn to receive as well. Some of you, that's all you do is receive, and you need to get that right with Jesus, okay? But I want to talk specifically to some of you guys who sit there. Let me, let me tell you, it's, it's easy for my wife and I to give. It's much harder to be able to receive. But I think that we have actually harmed and done more harm by rejecting somebody helping us in the long term. Here's kind of how it works. When we were going through all, you know, school and different things, we had men and women who knew that we were going through school, and they would all of a sudden say, here, we want to give this to you. You know, you know, kind of like your grandpa did where they come and they shake your hand and they put a, like a 20 you know, spot in there. And we would sit there and almost every time I would sit there and go, no, I can't take this. I can't take this. God's providing for us. You know, don't give me. Don't give it to me. Finally, I had this godly saint take me aside. I wasn't a preacher or anything else. He just took me aside. He said, young man, he goes, I need to talk with you. And he goes, this is how this whole church thing works, son. 
And he says, God has called me to be generous and to give to those who are in need. And he goes, and so I'm just doing what the Bible ultimately calls me to be able to do. You don't have. I have. I'm coming to be able to help you. And if you don't allow me to receive it, you are specifically leading me to disobedience to God. Now be it, now take it and to be able to receive it. Do you know what I found in my own self? And sometimes receiving something that somebody's trying to give me, it's really just kind of fake humility. It's really just pride. Me saying, I don't need that. I don't want to look like a person that I'm ultimately in need. That's why we're so hush-hush when we're in need in churches. It amazes me when, when I'm like, I, I feel like I'm always the last to know. Somebody over here, they're, they're having trouble, and, and I didn't hear about it. I'm like, shh, don't, don't tell Brother Mike. Why not? I love you. We love you. We want to help you. It's what God has called us to be able to do. There's, it's not a pride issue. There's just times when we all need help, yes? And when we don't need help, we look to be the one who helps. But when we're in a need of help, we can look around, and hopefully there are brothers and sisters in Christ there willing to be able to help us out as well. Do you see how that works? We have to be gracious givers, generous givers, but we have to be gracious and generous receivers as well. So let, let me say this. Let me bring it back to verse 9, because this is really what, what all of the motivation really stems from. It's the ultimate motivation of why we're generous givers. And here it is in verse 9. He says this. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Th that's the key. You know. Uh, the Greek word is actually you've experienced it. You've experienced truthfully the saving grace of Jesus Christ is what he's saying. And he says that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Here's the motivation. He says, did you know that Jesus, before he took the form of a man and was born in that stinky stable, did you understand that he was with God, dwelt with God? Of course, he is God. He's the second person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But did you know that they existed for all eternity with no being in perfect harmony, unity, and love for one another? It just doesn't get any better than that. Then all of a sudden, and we don't get it, we're going to create a world. Okay, fine. Maybe we'll ask some of these questions. Why in the world? All this Because we know he didn't need us. But yet in the midst of it, he chooses to leave from the glory of heavens and to be able to come to this heap to save and to die and become impoverished and to give it all up so that you and I may be rich in righteousness forgiven of our sins so that we now can be placed in the position that Jesus Christ was for all eternity in heaven with him. I say very closely that you know, because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and I know that the grand spectrum of all, all of you are, you know that that works in, works in your heart, doesn't it? Man, I want to be generous because the generosity that Jesus Christ has shown me. It's a great motivation. But for some of you today, maybe it just does nothing. And maybe it's because you've never experienced the grace of Jesus Christ and salvation. Can I tell you that you, like all the rest of us, the Bible says, are sinners and you've sinned against God? You've willfully sinned against him, your creator? And by doing so, the Bible says that the righteous wrath of God is burning against you? That one day God is going to judge you just like he was going to judge all of us in here. And, and, and he's right to do that. We rebelled against him. But in his goodness and his love for you, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place. And the Bible says if you will repent and turn from your sins and your sinful way, 
and receive by faith the completed work of Jesus Christ, that he died and he died in your place up on the cross. If you repent and turn and say, I'm not living this sinful life anymore, I'm going to pursue him. And you receive him by faith. He says, he'll make you rich. Not financially, but rich in grace, rich in mercy, rich in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Once you've done that, then you understand from an experiential process what it means to be a generous giver. So the call is this. We're either calling you to the cross, to Christ who's been a generous giver to us all, or I'm telling you to move from the cross. If you're not a believer, you go to the cross today. You cling in faith. You accept Jesus as your Savior. If you're a believer in Christ, now I'm asking you to act from the cross. You know you've experienced his grace and mercy. You've experienced his generous giving in your life. Now go out and be a generous giver. That's how we respond this morning. Would you stand today and we're going to pray. This altar is open. I'm going to be down here in the front and I'd love to be able to pray with you if you need prayer or musicians are coming at this time. Um, and we're just going to sing. And we're going to worship. And this is our time of response. And it doesn't mean that you walk an aisle. It means that you worship God. We're going to, we're going to respond in giving. We're, we're going to respond in repenting, uh, giving God thanks. This whole time is about responding to him. So will you respond tonight or this morning in what Jesus